the design professions are intrinsically optimistic. And if you don't feel that, I don't know how you get up in the morning. Because if you don't think what you're going to do is going to make the world a slightly better place, uh, you're in the wrong field. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City, conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here with Dana Cuff, an author and educator whose research focuses on affordable housing and urban density. Dana joins us today to discuss her work on the politics of density in Los Angeles. Dana, welcome. Thank you. So you are, among other things we could say, Professor of Architecture and Urban Design at UCLA, where right. you are the founding director of uh, City Lab. That's right. So for the past decade or two, uh, you've been engaged in questions of uh, the built environment in Los Angeles. Uh, yes. Tell us about that work. Well, City Lab started in 2006. I began it with my colleague, Roger Sherman, an urban designer and architect, uh, who has since joined another architecture practice. And we started it because we could see that after Katrina, there was so little response from architects about how to deal with really massive urban issues that a city like Los Angeles, kind of known for calamities and disasters, could use serious design research center. And it turned out that that was the case. We didn't really have any major hurricanes that we had to deal with. But, you know, I think we started with four initiatives, basically. Rethinking green, trying to think about sustainability issues, something that's really plagued Los Angeles from the start. Probably the most overarching theme was the post-suburban city. Uh, I think of Los Angeles as the mother of all suburbs, even though I know I have colleagues who think Rome might have been that. And it seems to me we ought to also be the place where we solve suburban problems. We also did an initiative around urban sensing based on some of the sort of smart technology stuff I was working in. And then we had another one on new infrastructures. And we added an important one maybe five years ago on spatial justice. And those themes then have driven all the work we do, which is all self-initiated. You would think Los Angeles, like New York, would have multiple urban design think tanks. But in fact, we just really didn't have some good urban thinkers, in part because we have no long-term tradition of urban planning and design. It's interesting. I mean, you mentioned this. Of course, there's the longstanding intellectual commitments to geography, policy, and mm. planning, a range of cognate disciplines, certainly a longstanding commitment to architecture and the design fields. I mean, Southern California is home to uh, a dozen really leading institutions, whether it's your employer, University of California, Los Angeles, whether it's um, USC School of Architecture, right. we think about SciArc, the Woodbury, Cal Arts. Like One could go on and on uh, about the kind of uptake of uh, intelligence, uh, people having access to education and design and the arts. And yet, Somehow in our experience and our conversations here, Los Angeles has been a place where the city was really the product of the work of architects. Well, and I think the way you describe that feeds into the stereotype of Los Angeles as not having a there there, right? That it's uh, 98 suburbs in search of a city. It was sort of that way in terms of the schools. We always talk about how we should be collaborating and working together on the pressing issues of Los Angeles, and it doesn't seem to coalesce. And I think part of that is kind of 
furthering the myth or somehow fulfilling the prophecy that instead of seeing Los Angeles as a place with a 19th century downtown that's actually extremely vibrant with a fair amount of public spaces and symbolic public buildings and a really rich tradition of architectural heritage, particularly since World War II, that we shouldn't be really thinking of ourselves as a place where a built form has governed the way the city evolves, even if governed primarily by developers instead of by planners. And maybe that would characterize the city. I've been struck in our conversations in, in the city with uh, Christopher Hawthorne, among many others, of a sense of history-mindedness and a mm. sense of mm -hmm. that, that era in Los Angeles, Hawthorne's formulation of the first LA, which was really progressive right. era associated with uh, the City Beautiful movement or the Art Deco. Right. So of course there are those layers of history, but even you yourself authored a significant book about the idea that Los Angeles was delivered in part through residential architecture. Right, I, I think the DNA of Los Angeles really is its residential form and primarily its single family housing. That doesn't mean that we don't have a really remarkable array of multifamily housing from queer housing to, you know, duplexes in Hollywood or the Hollywood Hills kind of hotels. But it's the single family zone that, you know, blankets, as Bannum's legacy has attested to, the plains of id. So we're basically struggling past that. I also think, though, that the history of Los Angeles has become more apparent to all of us, including the people you mentioned, because we're working downtown again. You know, until 20 years ago, downtown was still a concept that we architects were all trying to revitalize. Now, you know, there's public buildings, cafes, street life, people walking dogs, housing in industrial areas. So, you know, there's something like 20,000 units of housing right now in the pipeline for the downtown area. Not exactly the kind of housing we might need, but more housing is always better. I know that you've been committed for a long time in your research and in your practice to the delivery advocacy for public housing, especially affordability mm. in housing. Of course, that's among the major challenges in Southern California, frankly, among the major challenges facing the American city. You mentioned this housing that is in the pipeline and yet describe it as not maybe completely fulfilling mm. the, the demand. Tell us, what are we missing in Southern California in terms of a solution to the, the need for accessible housing? Well, I mean, at the most basic level, we need affordable housing, not just one form. We need every form of affordable housing. And what people are building now, partly because the development industry has governed LA's growth, and we've depended on development for that, they're building at the most profitable end, which is luxury housing. And of course, the pipeline you know, starts five years before. Well, maybe there was a market for luxury housing five years ago, but really we're overbuilt in that right now. So we also don't have, unlike New York, a long legacy and built fabric of social housing. So originally, you know, we tried to build 10,000 units of public housing in the second wave of the Housing Acts in 49. And I think in the end, we built like not even a third of that. So our legacy and practices just haven't been built through public social housing strategies. We have nonprofits that are fantastic, but now in Los Angeles, it's very hard to find land. It's very hard to get neighbors to uh, politically go along with the very housing that we all need. So there are 
all kinds of new complications. So the combination of a, a general kind of nimbyism, let's call it mm. that, a kind of, you know, yes, affordable housing, but not in my neighborhood, combined with a sense that the, the population of both the city and the county have reached a certain kind of apex. So you have this kind of economic right. you know, engine of this uh, 10-year bull, bull market, but at the same moment, without that engine of growth, it's not so clear where affordable housing might emerge in that context, no? Yeah. I was just watching Marriage Story. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but everyone in New York who's trying to convince uh, the guy, Broadway play director, to move to L.A. says, well, you'll love it in L.A. There's so much space. Oh, yeah, don't forget about L.A., the space there. I mean, it's this kind of stereotype that in Los Angeles, all we have is field conditions, whereas all there is in New York is, you know, dense high rises. And I think that kind of mythology even pervades people who live in Los Angeles, that we think of ourselves still as an expansive, sprawling metropolis when actually we've hit the limits. So if you go out to the Inland Empire, which used to be the area east of L.A., that you could always find a house that was more affordable, those prices have also skyrocketed. So there really is nowhere further out to go. And because of that, it's causing all this new kind of uh, self-evaluation and challenges to how we think we live here. Uh, maybe we aren't quite as cliched about it as New Yorkers are, but I still think people here value the idea of a lawn even though they don't have one. So one of the projects you've been engaged in through your work at UCLA and City Lab has been an interest in an advocacy for accessory dwelling units. Mm. Tell us about that work. Well, so when we started at City Lab in 2006, one of the goals was self-generated saying in order to think of the post-suburban city, we really need to be thinking about doubling the density. Why not imagine that all of the single family zone could actually be shared and have a second unit there. And we came up with that really uh, like an indigenous practice because if you went to any of the lower income neighborhoods, any of the outskirts, there was already this robust building practice of garage apartments and second units and granny flats. So, and, and people were doing it heroically. You know, they were building on the weekends, pouring their own slabs because it was all illegal. And then you couldn't actually advertise and build wealth that way because uh, you couldn't sell it as if it had a second unit. So seeing that kind of industriousness, it was clear that there was a need. And it came to me that really everybody in Los Angeles had some kind of backyard home story whether it was for a kid who was coming back from college or a nanny or a grandparent or that they were trying to get their kids through college so they wanted a smaller place and wanted to rent their front place. And if you look in the history of Los Angeles, people have always used their yards for income generation. There's a really beautiful book called My Blue Heaven by a woman named Becky Nicolaides about that. So in the idea that we could double the density, increase the sustainability, and make new housing that would be smaller and more affordable, we started working. For 10 years, I studied every aspect, I think, uh, granny flats. What were the lot typologies? I don't know, maybe you've done this in your work too, but no one had really studied uh, how single-family properties were subdivided. And when we did field surveys, there were some neighborhoods that almost two-thirds of the lots already had built an informal secondary unit. Um, and they ranged from really poorly built to absolutely perfectly built, but none of them legal. So the state assemblyman from my district 
called me up to say, what housing ideas do you have? And so I put together a team of experts that were architects and builders and developers and researchers. And we all went together and proposed several ideas. And the accessory dwelling unit one was the strongest, partly because UCLA had been so extensively involved through City Lab in the research. And we ended up writing the policy at the state level, jumping over the city. And by doing that, we, instead of having the 500,000 single family lots, which exist in Los Angeles, we had what I estimate to be 8.1 million single family lots, all of which now can have a secondary unit. So it was uh, very effective. Now, uh, I think we should have tripled the density. But when I started talking about doubling the density in 2007 or so, people thought I was insane. You How know. do they feel now? Uh, they think I didn't go far enough, which is amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's been that amount of flip, really, in yeah. the last 12 years for people feeling like Los Angeles could be forever as it was, mm -hmm. as in 1962, to realizing that we have to think uh, harder and better about how to make a city that's open to all the people who, you know, are currently living here and need to live here. Mm. So that that's a real struggle and a really interesting time to be an architect in LA. There are so many aspects of that, of that experience that you're sharing that I think are notable. I mean, among them, the idea that instead of a, a single major project or a, a big mm. infrastructure upgrade or a single big, right. you know, like the, the kind of big ribbon cutting opportunity or the big philanthropic moment or the, the big public realm gesture that we see uh, some of these days, uh, the idea that you have something which is really distributed through right. private actors, right? right. And, and not, not even necessarily to one particular neighborhood or one particular community, but r rather, in fact, in the way that single family home ownership and the individual parcel and its relationship to the history of the city distributes a kind of capacity. But also with the, the idea that you were beginning with something that was already de facto happening. Right. I think the prevalence of private actors in Los Angeles versus public actors is also the genesis of the ADU law really being as effective as it is. Because it means that, you know, every time I would go to a neighborhood council meeting, the collective will was a bit touchy. You know, like, well, we're not sure we want that. How much parking problems would it make? Is it going to be more traffic? How do we know who's living there? And afterwards, three or four individuals will come up to me and say, how could I build one? What would it take? I'd like to have that. And basically, person by person, there was a deep need and desire for them, but collectively the willpower was difficult to push the needle. And I mean, now they, uh, people have seen it isn't actually so dangerous in their neighborhoods as they imagined. Well, now that you've done this work, I mean, a, a part of what I'm struck by also is the, from what I understand, the, in addition to the research that you did uh, in your academic work and in, through City Lab, the idea that you engaged in a, a kind of grassroots political process, right? To put yeah. it in, is, that, is that a fair description? You know, I think when you deal with, I mean, I'm sure you find this in your own work, when you deal with urban problems and futures, opening possibilities at the urban scale, as complicated as this, it entails everything from building technology and design magic to lending institutions and what constitutes a collateral. And it's hard to get a grip on all the pieces that are necessary when you make 
this kind of really integrative bottom-up change. But I do think it's one of the ways the city will evolve. I think the kind of way we work is much more uh, what I would call a radical increment, meaning you develop a design idea for something small that if it proliferates has huge implications. And that's the way City Lab has always worked. I mean, a part of what I'm struck by there also is, on the one hand, it's an approach to the political economy, which I more often than not have associated in the American city with a kind of, let's say, old left or a kind of community development organization, which is district by it's this community I'm working on behalf of this organization and for you to take that as an approach but then go to Sacramento and say well what, what could the state do to enable this on the ground the other principal distinction between what we do and a community design operation or an architecture practice is that we initiate all our own work so it's really rooted in long scholarship that says here's a way you could intervene but there's no actor at present to do that work an architect couldn't have done what we did because there's no client for it right we worked with a lot of architects i mean i think kevin daly's architecture with the little buy home that we built was a magical turning point to make people believe these backyard homes really were architectural but no single actor was able to pull that kind of complex, collaborative operation together. It took knowing from long years of scholarship what to do. And I'll tell you what we're, we're working on now, and you can see how this idea basically proliferates or this strategy proliferates. Now that we have this network of actors in Northern and Southern California, because we found a team in Northern California doing similar work, we're working on schoolyard housing. We have something like, I think, seven, the size of seven Manhattans in public schools in the state of California, of land. And only the University of California is consistently providing housing. So if we took the elementary schools, middle schools, community colleges, and state schools, we could start providing affordable housing on free land again that would serve students as a kind of model for how other kinds of affordable housing would occur. And those are sites that are available that aren't pressing against neighborhoods all the time. And now we're really focusing particularly on community colleges because of the growing awareness that those students in California, of which there are millions, have the same housing needs, of course, as everyone else. And the community colleges have huge amounts of land, sometimes 300 acres, of which maybe 50 acres, 40 acres is occupied by classroom buildings, and the rest are agricultural land because they were often colleges training farmers, which, of course, is not really what we use community colleges for anymore. Not so so much in my experience. What's (laughs) interesting to me is the through line there seems to be it's not so much the delivery of housing, which this culture seems to be able to do. It's not so much even the the design or the construction, which people seem to have access to. Mm -hmm. It's the value of land. And the parcelization of land and its ownership, because presumably the construction costs on this community college site will be the same, whether it's across the street on a private parcel or on the site of a former you know, community college. Yes. Yeah, so I tweak that slightly to say that, yeah, we've done fine with housing production, particularly when it's conventional forms. So single family homes, nobody does it better, right? Look out in the Antelope Valley. 
it goes on forever. We're out of that kind of land now. So who's working next? Maybe the kinds of developers of multifamily housing that build high-end housing. Okay, we have sites downtown around the river that are all getting developed by people like Bjarke Engels and Herzog and Demeron and Okay, we can do that also, but what about more innovative forms that might actually serve affordable housing? So where do we find excess land? Where is there excess capacity that hasn't really been seen before? And in the work we did with both backyard homes and now with schoolyard homes, I think of it as free land because it was land that is already purchased, but unoccupiable for one reason or another. So the combination, not just of the land's value in a kind of financial or market sense, but the idea that it's already publicly owned, first no. of all, in, no. the, in, the, in the Republic of California, and at the same moment is less encumbered by being a part of this neighborhood or right. this property owners association. Yes. Okay. So here's the other component, which is that it also captures new populations, new programmatic needs, and in that sense requires new architectural form. So it requires architectural thinking to leverage the housing. For instance, if you think of UCLA, where we're doing some extensive work now, because that land is pretty densely built already, but we have an amazing housing administration there that's really trying to find creative solutions for students who can't live within an hour and a half commute of the campus. And they're getting PhDs. They're amazing, these kids that are doing this work, driving in and out each day and doing a PhD at the same time. So they need something much more like a hostel or a cheap hotel or a weekly during finals week overnight, or maybe they need sleeping pods or napping zones, right? There's a million different ways we could be solving accommodation for the smaller segments of, say, our collective populations in their relationship to where they live and where they work. But we don't do that because developers and banks don't build those things. Those aren't conventional typologies. So what City Lab steps in to do is generate new thinking about types and then if it takes, like it did with the secondary units, then we go and try and figure out how would we get loans for it? How would we get political support for it? Who would build it? What would it look like? Um, and I'm now seeing UCLA and the other UC systems, but we are so well connected in UCLA as an amazing testing ground for really whole new segments of accommodation. And I'm not even calling it housing anymore because it seems to me... Uh, something like pod share, we live, or, you know, more in the keeping with what we're working on now. In other contexts, Dana, you've referred to urban design as occupying a relatively weak position vis-a-vis, mm. -vis, you know, not having a clientele. You've mentioned that in our right. conversation already. And by, by virtue of not having a clientele, therefore being somehow uh, adrift in this particular co context. Is that a sensibility that you think applies to urban design more broadly as a discipline or a profession? Is it specific to Southern California or Los Angeles in your experience? Well, that's a good question. I, I mean, I don't know how you teach it at the GSD. I think you guys do a pretty good job. And you also have landscape and urbanism. So you're already trying to cut across disciplinary boundaries. It seems to me urban design is intrinsically transdisciplinary and collaborative and negotiated. And that isn't really the way we teach architectural design. 
though it's becoming more so, I would say, and a lot of us are experimenting with how to do that so that architects, when they get into practice, will be more effective. In Los Angeles, especially, if you think of that as the platform for an urban design way of thinking, you know, our urban design department is a couple of very good souls, but who've had a hard time getting any traction in the city. We don't have what, say, Toronto has or Paris or, you know, many other cities, Shanghai, right? We don't have a strong planning context, let alone design context. So it's hard for me to see, except for through this mechanism that I call the radical increment, how you teach urbanism from an architectural point of view. Because I don't believe... I'm capable or even that interested in big architecture as urbanism. I think that's a, you know, people can do that, but that's a kind of one-off operation. And I'm interested in much more systemic. One of the conversations that we've been engaged in here in the city has to do with the relationship between the design professions, let's say, mm. the financialization and the delivery of certain forms of housing mm -hmm. and the, the present and increasingly evident need for both you know, societal address but also architectural address to questions of homelessness. So clearly among the central pressing questions in American City today is how will we house people that are underhoused, right. that are in vulnerable conditions or have been on the street? You know, in this case, of right. course, you can experience Los Angeles without experiencing this on a daily basis. At the same moment, I have spoken with a number of people in Los Angeles in our visits that are really engaged in this on a, on, on a daily basis. You know, I mean, yeah. I know in Southern California of more examples of built, affordable and subsidized housing mm -hmm. at a high level mm -hmm. of quality than mm -hmm. I know of any other American city. Mm -hmm. Not that there aren't other experiments elsewhere that are yeah. of interest, but how do we uh, how do we bridge the gap between the, the energy and the intelligence and the innovation that's happening that I see on the ground, and what seems to be in, in, in many of the conversations an almost insurmountable political economy, or impossibility of housing our population? Yeah, you know I think that the most apparent and egregious and sad aspect of that is our unhoused population, which has expanded and grown and really is living like chronically on the streets now, something like 60,000 people. And each time we count, it's growing. And each neighborhood that's approached, even after the council members have all decided they will build supportive or homeless housing in their neighborhoods, uh, very progressive left-wing neighbors come out and say, oh, it's just not good for them here. You'll have to find a different site. And until we push past that, we aren't going to be able to get people into housing. Until we find greater subsidies and recognize that it's a much more complex problem than just housing alone, we're not going to get past the problem. And I think until we start breaking down the big unhoused population into much more refined understanding of who the people are and why they're on the streets, we're not going to solve the problem. So the work that we're doing now really has a lot to do with housing insecurity rather than chronically unhoused. And it's going to take a thousand people doing a thousand things with political leadership at the top and grassroots work from the bottom. One of the things City Lab has done as a means to begin this set of investigations, because if it took me 10 years to figure out how to do granny flats, 
I won't be alive by the time I figure out what's how to think through unhoused populations. But we've moved uh, CityLab into a satellite operation in the MacArthur Park, Lafayette Park neighborhood, which is sort of at the heart of downtown. It's a primarily Central American and Latinx population that's got huge pressure for development coming from downtown on the east, but hasn't yet had the Boyle Heights effect, which is really hyper gentrification and real antagonism between the people who live there and the people who've come in there. So I'm trying to figure out now how we can think about design and the built environment and better cities uh, from a like embedded perspective. If we live with the four different community organizations that we've partnered with there for the next five years, can we actually bring those groups together to figure out how to make decent sidewalks, more shade, safer parks, uh, more housing, build-in affordability as the development pressures, which are really pervasive across Los Angeles now, push those people out of their homes. I mean, many people have referred to the business cycle and you know, mm. kind of structural forces of capitalism in which following the housing mortgage crisis of 0809, of course, there was a kind of surge in people put on the streets who were already maybe vulnerable right. and had certain supports taken away. And if no, knowing that this is a structural condition, you know, many of my colleagues are now on what they refer to as a kind of pre-recession footing. They're looking at their watch. That's we're 10 years into this bull market. And, and so I guess one of the questions I've got is to what extent is that condition in Los Angeles something that people have become inured to? Has it become so vernacular and so commonplace that people have essentially given up hope? Well, uh, you know, there's another narrative line about the end of California. I'm sure you've heard it, right? Between the fires and the homeless population and, you know, mortgage crises, people think the California era is over. It's one calamity after another, which is really what's kept our movie industry going. You know, it's always possible to take that kind of scenario and play it forward in any city. You know, I could do it for New York or Boston or Des Moines. But in Los Angeles, I guess the idea of this multi-pronged solution, we never have a single solution for anything. I mean, there's never been a Mayor Lindsay in LA who had an idea that Manhattan would be different. You know, we. That's just not the way we work. So it's always been fragmented and parcelized and uh, a set of experiments. I think that's why the Case Study House project uh, was so powerful here and maybe why our Department of Transportation is so effective that, you know, just different segments have come up with different solutions. And I actually think that the community lending industry now that's growing in Los Angeles has some of amazing answers for how to start providing new forms of housing. I think the population of unhoused people on everybody's streets isn't something you ever can get adjusted to. Everyone is uh, faced with it directly every day. So you can't get over the idea that you have to find a solution. It doesn't feel hopeless. It feels even more necessary. So... Yeah, but this goes back to my feeling that it's going to be a fragmented, multi-pronged solution. We can't attack neoliberalism and think we're going to wait until we get over that to figure out how to provide affordable housing. We need to leverage 
every means possible, community lenders, uh, tech or companies, schools, backyards. Uh, and I don't think that's too optimistic. I think that's actually realistic and pragmatic. I mean, if you look at how much surface parking, for instance, there is in Los Angeles, complete land banking, waste of land. It could also be on the ground plane and we could just lift all the housing above it. You know, there's, there's actually plenty of land if we just thought about it differently. And if we figured out how to finance it in a way that people could afford it so that it wasn't a 1,200 square foot, two bedroom apartment. You know, it's interesting. There's a whole new product type, as they call it, of housing that's evolving, say, on the west side, which is micro units. If they were better subsidized, they wouldn't be as horrific as they are. But maybe 300 square feet, 400 square feet, they rent for like $2,000 an apartment, sort of New York style rents. And people who are supposed to be living one person to one of those are doubling and tripling up. So it's like Hong Kong style densities and rents with not very good architectural thinking behind it, frankly, because we're still using old models of unit mix and you know conventions that don't fit new housing types. So Again, it ties back, I think, to the academic context as being a real resource for trying to move the needle of housing in Los Angeles and then, of course, Los Angeles is a model for elsewhere to build better housing of a greater range of types. Do you find that the policy environment or the, the, the kind of planning culture in the city is amenable to those kinds of transformations? I mean, in many other contexts, in many American cities, people that we speak with, they tell me that, well, our zoning regulations, our land use planning, our automobile parking requirements, they're all fighting the last war. Mm-hmm. And that there's, and, and of course, mm-hmm. we expect that our political and, and you know, juridical mechanisms will be conservative. They tend to be the last to come right. when there's you know, societal or cultural change. Well, you know, it's not by accident that we were able to pass the ADU law at the state level, but not at the local level. So I actually think the state is highly aware. I mean, Los Angeles... People think San Francisco's bad by some measures. You know, Michael Storper wrote a book about the histories of Los Angeles and uh, San Francisco and found that actually our uh, disparity between wages and housing costs were greater because our wages are depressed in every job category from gardener to CEO compared to San Francisco's. So... In any case, the entire state is faced with housing crisis. And I think because of that, the state legislature is somewhat protected from local controversies to make better policy. And they're pushing forward remarkably radical policy, which now we need architecture to demonstrate that the visions of very high density minor transit stops, like around a bus station, like SB50 would have provided, can actually be a very livable neighborhood. And that's where, to me, uh, the architecture and design component of urban design has to be working now. It's not like we can make zoning policy like we did after the war, where you can just say, okay, it's going to be yellow here, that's single family, it's going to be orange here, that's going to be multifamily, as if you had one big fat paintbrush. Now it's much more acupunctural 
and requires design thinking so that people see that life 20 years from now could be actually more affordable and more livable than it is today. Interesting. So your call is for architecture and for urban design to be as progressive as the potential for political change. I think they have to go hand in hand. Unless we have a visioning process, I, I'm not naive to think, oh, if people saw how beautiful a neighborhood could be, even if it was all four stories, that they'll all just go along with it. But until we start that conversation where we're really imagining futures and uh, envisioning them and opening possibilities, not just pushing whatever's going on now bigger and bigger, really showing that it's qualitatively different. I don't see how people get from here to there, from the city today to the city tomorrow. Your students at UCLA to come and study architecture and urban design, mm. do they come expecting societal change? They come expecting progressive politics? through design? Yes, I'm sure your students do too. They're amazing. This generation of students is the best student generation I've ever worked with. They all come and we don't always respond as effectively as we could with ideas about sustainability. I mean, they're facing the two most critical crises that architecture itself addresses in the history of my teaching between environmental climate change and unhoused housing crisis issues. Those are both things that architecture plays a huge role in. And they want to have some action there. They want agency in that. So I don't know. I've, I've never had more responsive students than I have right now. It doesn't mean that they, I, I don't teach them policy. I mean, I don't know how you teach that. I leave that to the planners. But I teach them about how you do architecture with those things in mind. That that's not irrelevant to architecture. Are you optimistic about the potential for a Green New Deal in the state of California or, or federally? Yes. If we can't do it here, where are we going to do it? I mean, California is as progressive as it gets, and we're struggling. I, I don't know. I still imagine that California can be a leader in this. I hope we can keep on to our automobile emissions standards and our recycling standards. It's a stretch given the economy's problems these days or, or looming ones. It's interesting how, I mean, you've, you know, in our conversation referenced the, the role that Los Angeles has played as a certain horizon, a certain mm. kind of, mm. you know, the plains of id, a certain kind of manifestation of a, of a, kind, of a, a kind of aspiration to a certain kind of way of life. But it's also true that California, certainly more broadly, has been home to all sorts of um, reforms, uh, protections and corrections and adjustments. And in that sense, uh, you know, one can read the recent past, whether it's um, Prop 13 right. all the way through, you know, yeah. you know, California, you know, kind of legislation that's maybe more protective environmentally. And seeing that, uh, I mean, I, I'm interested in, you know, Bannum's formulation of the non-plan. I mean, you referenced Bannum mm -hmm. earlier in the idea that Bannum came and found a place where, well, political decision-making happened, but many people were arriving here to escape planning in a way, <laughs> right? It was a kind of, you know, realization of the self. Yeah. And yeah. and I think in many of my conversations, I think Christopher Hawthorne mentioned something like this, a kind of, a kind of exhaustion of that infinite expanse and the idea right. that, well, where are we now? And so my, my question for you, Dan, is to what extent can we, from the lessons of Los Angeles, from your work, 
can we generalize to other American cities? I've been struck by how many people are really reticent to say anything at all about other cities from their experience in Los Angeles. <laughs> well, there is a kind of essentialist ma manifesto that's always gone hand in hand with Los Angeles, which I think has always been a myth. In the same way New York has it, probably equally badly. But, but Manhattan is always generalizing itself to everywhere else, right? I mean, it was referred to it, you know, Rem referred to it as the ur urbanism, right? It, it's always yeah. been exporting yeah. its models, whereas in, in Los Angeles, I find it's a bit of an island to itself. Right? Well, interestingly, maybe you could reverse the idea that Manhattan would spread everywhere to basically that Los Angeles has absorbed everywhere. I mean, I think of Los Angeles really tied to the Pacific Rim. I think London and Paris and New York are irrelevant to us, frankly. N the more I'm t connected to the north-south axis, especially to Mexico and Latin America and South America, and then to Asia, the more you see where Los Angeles fits into a real global picture. And... To me, those are also the populations that have made Los Angeles the most vibrant city in America, for sure. I mean, I have no doubts about that. I may be arrogant about it, but like, there's nowhere that's more interesting architecturally and politically and socially now than Los Angeles. And it's because of those immigrant populations largely and because of our history as being Mexico, you know, 150 years ago. So that vitality is the source of our creative future in my mind. And though there has been a long-standing white dominant political identity, it's actually never corresponded to the actual population here. And it's always been their struggle to try to push, say, downtown from Spring Street and Broadway to Grand Avenue, a place that still doesn't cohere as a piece of urbanism. So all of that to me is the um, kind of bubbling Petri dish and life force in this city that makes it so that uh, we can be a model because of this way we've absorbed our cultural and architectural and spatial history from the other direction of urbanism. I want to ask you, Dana, about how you got into this line of work uh, between your tenure at UCLA and your education at UC Berkeley. You've been in the UC system for some time. How is it that you found this subject matter? Well, I grew up on an orange grove. You probably don't know that. My grandfather was a farmer. My father was a farmer and engineer in order to support the farm as water became more expensive in California. And my, my two sisters and I and all of our husbands worked in the last generation to support that same farm until we finally sold it. And at each stage, the sort of development transformations that happened really were... Uh, I think the most exciting things that I watched as a kid, whether it was sidewalks coming to our little rural town or, you know, trying to figure out how you could grow food in this state when there really was no water and no real rural lifestyle possible, at least in near the Mexican border for so us. oil and orange groves is that kind of original <laughs> right. kind of, you know, kind of Anglo right. economic driver right. Uh, right. buoyed by tourism and then land development. Yeah. You you saw yeah. that play out in your, in your childhood. Yeah being interested in that transformation and also having an aesthetic sensibility, it probably is natural that you end up in architecture. I don't think I knew that urban design was even a thing. Maybe that has contributed to my lack of belief in urban design as a 
possible direction. Sounds a little bit like my relationship to landscape architecture. I didn't know it existed <laughs> until I did. And then I like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Does it really exist? Yeah. And so in, in that regard, you published a book in 2011, Fast Forward Urbanism, with your mm. co-founder, Roger Sherman, that I want to touch on. Mm. I think it, in that, that publication, uh, as much as anything else, kind of got at that sense of uh, the acceleration, but also the optimism, the speed at which transformations and innovation were happening. Yeah, I think, I mean, you've touched upon optimism several times in our conversation. I don't know how you operate in this profession if you're not an optimist. I mean, maybe you can stay in academia and be a pessimist, but the design professions are intrinsically optimistic. And if you don't feel that, I don't know how you get up in the morning, because if you don't think what you're going to do is going to make the world a slightly better place, if you aren't always operating on the world you want to live in, not the one you do live in, uh, you're in the wrong field. And we still imagine, and that may be part myth, that Los Angeles is a place to play that out. I, I do feel like Los Angeles is a place where urban possibilities can be played out differently than in practically any other city in the United States. And to me now, I, I think looking at how cities change and um, how architecture contributes to that, we need more models. You know, there aren't standard rules. This is one thing I think that's really special about Los Angeles is because we don't have codified urban roles and spaces and guidelines and even zones, there's a way that you can experiment here that isn't possible in most other places. So, you know, there's a variance for everything in LA. It drives the planners insane. But because we don't really think of uh, something like the industrial zone as being absolutely firmly formulated, it means that it's open to experimentation where that's the, what architects can do. And I think we've had a long tradition, at least in this century or in the past century, 20th century, of architects leading some of those experiments. So, I mean, from the hillside houses of Frank Lloyd Wright to uh, Cal Hamilton, who was a planner architect who worked on the a polynucleated city to, you know, Tom Main and people like uh, the case study housing architects. So They seem to keep coming. <laughs> right. Dana Koff, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.